Good morning, good afternoon, good evening everyone. We're joining from uh, multiple places today for this webinar held by XAPA, Advised Investment Advocate Organization. You can always track our activities to our website, sapa.org. We are delighted to welcome you all for an exciting discussion with panelists I will introduce in a couple of minutes from now. Uh, this session is recorded and a session you can upload and share with colleagues as much as you want. We are here today to talk together about uh, starting this process uh, led by the European Union mandating human rights due diligence uh, with a process that is going to uh, 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 kick off uh, with public consultation later this year. Um, we're excited to have so many of you joining us today. And I will just start with very simple uh, practicalities to ensure that you make the most of this uh, time together. You can, of course, change your name uh, that is displayed uh, on the interface. You may not necessarily see everyone, the more than 200 people who are registered to this session today. Uh, you're, however, in mute mode, meaning that you cannot interface uh, directly with people and speaker. Uh, instead, you can use the chat function. And as the facilitator, I will make sure uh, that your uh, session will be, uh, uh, that, that, that will moderate the discussion and make sure that you will be able to, to um, to, 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 to place questions, if any. Uh, your camera is off, so we want to maintain uh, the bandwidth and minimize the carbon footprint of this event. You are welcome to invite other participants, uh, colleagues, for example, or people from your ecosystem you think uh, should make the most of that session to ensure good alignment on those sensitive and complex topics of business and human rights. If you want to share um, insights using social media, please include app.org so everyone can track discussions using one time flow. And most of the participants, this is accessible through LinkedIn, although you notice that you joined it through Eventbrite, and there are some people who register directly to Eventbrite, but at the end of the day, through LinkedIn, you have something like half or two thirds of the full list, which is a good starting point. And last, a short poll will be activated um, 15 minutes uh, ahead of uh, the hour. Um, and please do share uh, and complete the, the, the poll. It's really three questions that's helpful for us so we can improve those webinars and make sure that you make the best experience possible uh, engaging with SAPA.org. So in simple terms, I'll take just a few minutes um, to work through what we are at SAPA.org. Uh, and ensure that you have a good understanding of how you're addressing that uh, perspective on the uh, human rights due diligence. Um, and uh, we want to make sure that also we, we provide some contextual information before uh, making the most of the contribution of our two panelists who will bring um, a great picture uh, from a, a corporate perspective combined with a perspective also from the US because we really believe that those conversations need to remain as global as possible uh, because we work with uh, corporations and investors, which at the end of the day have to uh, address those topics of human rights for, with the most global perspective possible. This is what makes sense. So XAPA.org um, is an organization um, that is uh, set up uh, to uh, really uh, work on human rights among other topics based on the report we released at the beginning of this year towards 2030. We believe we're in a decade of turbulence and uh, the human rights is one of the big topics um, which corporations and investors have to address. I am myself, Farid, I'm a 
CEO of our organization, have more than 20 years of experience working across industries and markets and uh, uh, pushing forward those topics of human rights across companies and investor portfolios. Work with more than 150 Fortune 1000 uh, companies and I've clearly seen the difference in the impact of the UN guiding principles uh, 10 years ago in the way uh, the guiding principles were able to build greater alignment across ecosystems of stakeholders and complex and sensitive topics of human rights. Um, this initiative is coming at the moment when, of course, there have been a lot of other initiatives, uh, Modern Slavery Act, among others, uh, in the UK, uh, Frank, and multiple other uh, issues. Although, what's interesting is we are quartered in France, and uh, this initiative is partly inspired from um, the uh, duty of vigilance, which was enacted in France a few years ago by now. So, we actually also have that kind of, 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 of expertise. At Sapa.org, our goal is really to accelerate the contribution of corporation investors uh, on the Agenda 2030, the global goals. And this is something we do when we pick the, the topic of human rights through three activities. We lead consulting, and that's how we frame and want to strategize the way corporations and investors have to really focus to have the maximum impact on human rights so they can maximize, minimize risk and they can really uh, build good element of what good meaning uh, with the stakeholders. But also, we don't want to be an organization that remains conceptual. We really want to address the hard topics of human rights. So the core of our activities is the pillar in the middle. We invest. We're an organization which designed federate investors to deploy large-scale programs addressing human rights issues. In practical terms, that means that we deploy large-scale programs through training, for example, uh, that enable um, vulnerable segments of people to access um, uh, content that enable them to access uh, decent wage, uh, better working and living condition, uh, gender equity uh, solutions, and other programs. So that's really the core. And we advocate, typically this webinar is a good example of our initiatives. We lead regular webinars with more than 100 people joining us. Uh, we've uh, uh, proven to become and be a, a, a unique community, um, and you are, you as participants, a great example of how we are a platform enabling people from around the globe, um, decision makers from around the ecosystem of business and human rights to get a chance to connect and align on those sensitive issues. And we're pretty happy to do that because that's part of our mission as a dot uh, uh, organization. We're a core team based in Paris of 10 people but we also deploy programs with a network of more than 150 experts based across the world. And that's actually exactly when I said that our positioning is to be an organization which is really solution-oriented. And for example, we work on agriculture and supply chain commodities. We work and involve agronomic people as part of our team. So we really get an in-depth understanding of the issues from the small and the farmer perspective, as an example. When we work with supply chain to design some risk approaches, we have some strategic partners uh, which can support us with data scientists, and that's how we manage complexity and big numbers. Um, so this is a limited example. We have active programs around the globe as we speak, and we are pretty delighted to uh, bring that conversation forward because we believe that at the end of the day, human rights is a very sensitive and important topic that will be addressed differently and is looking for innovative solutions to advance the rights, most importantly in the context of COVID-19, which generates high recession across a good number of markets, which can have impact on multiple human rights. 
A lot of our activities are accessible open source on our website and our publication section, uh, reports, printing papers, a uh, good number of uh, blogs and articles. Uh, we do connect the dots across issues uh, related to human rights. We believe that there are interconnections which are very important with, for example, the climate agenda, with the circular economy agenda. So we really uh, explore those topics as well um, as part of our mission. And our webinars are uh, regularly, uh, uh, we lead monthly webinars which are accessible also open source on our website. And as you can see, there are illustrative webinars which I think are interesting for you as a community because you can download and look at those. Uh, exploring other aspects of human rights, for example, for the due, due diligence on the local uh, context, for a factory, for example, and um, other webinars addressing the questions of SDGs uh, and avoiding SDG washing, which is, is a way to ensure that corporations, investors, and other stakeholders can build a credible approach uh, working on human rights. Getting into the core of our conversation, uh, for today, the due diligence. Uh, we've started with an announcement uh, that was made um, in April um, by the European Union, in simple terms, about how to the European Union would explore um, a mandatory due diligence um, in 2021. So we've engaged our affiliates, um, 150 plus, to get their perspective on all of that. There's some good intelligence between people based across Europe in Berlin, Brussels, for example, on those topics. Uh, and we've come up with a few, um, with some guidance that is um, coming with uh, the following slides. Um, I think it's important to also put that in the, in the context of uh, other uh, conversations. As many of you probably know, there are some uh, uh, legally binding instrument discussions uh, that have been uh, on and on at uh, the UN uh, in Geneva for something like more than five years. And I think this initiative from the EU is also consistent with those uh, UN-led uh, uh, discussions uh, that are on their way. So what do we expect? Uh, we know, uh, all of you as a community are perfectly aware of the, the guiding principles um, and the four-step four approach which is attached to those, which at the end of the day encourages uh, every uh, company or investor to really get a good sense on the risk that can be uh, those uh, uh, of human rights abuses uh, that might impact vulnerable people and uh, other segments. Uh, we think that out of that, uh, there's this question of an action plan to ensure that those can be prevented, uh, that the effectiveness is proven, and that's something that becomes a sensitive topic, how to prove that an action plan does affect and mitigate risks, and then that there is a relevant disclosure to build the landmark with stakeholders on those topics, which can include um, to have a direct um, contribution for, from the groups of people who can be uh, uh, impacted. There's uh, is the starting point, and now since April, there is this new direction forward, um, uh, encouraging that uh, uh, the due diligence directive uh, would be uh, led by the EU Justice Commission uh, with a work plan that is expected to be published in 2021. With two particular aspects we found important to bring to the attention of everyone. One is this question of enforcement mechanism, it's been lagging across um, a good number of, of initiatives to date. And the other one is the civil liability provision that uh, can come also with these um, uh, um, 
to this new initiative from the EU Justice Commission. Uh, we've worked with more than 80 plus 1,500 uh, investors in the, in the globe, so we can really see the value of those two aspects of enforcement mechanism and civil liability provision in the way that they can build much more uh, alignment um, in the way companies can lead um, and work on human rights in a credible manner. This initiative is coming at a moment when we believe that there are a good number of domestic legislations which are converging in a blurring way uh, because they're not expecting the same, exactly the same thing, but at the end of the day converging to call for um, more regulation. Uh, and we see that, for example, being engaged directly by um, across, for example, some OECD national contact point processes or with board of directors asking for um, clarity on how good, what good can mean when it's about working in human rights, for example. Uh, we've seen across the past decade how the human rights lands uh, could support internal alignment um, to lead the conversation on OPEX and, and, and CAPEX discussions, for example, with tech companies, mining companies, capital intensive companies, where, long story short, a good proactive management of human rights has proven uh, to save much more money than a reactive approach, having to, 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 to react on, on, on bad situations when they occur. Uh, we released the blog, uh, and for example, through our website, you can have a look at it, it's related to this topic, where we uh, make reference of some recent studies in the mining industry with big numbers showing how proactive management of human rights costs much less than uh, the reactive management of those. And last but not least, there is a global consensus um, on those uh, human rights uh, regulation uh, that is increasingly supported by the private sector, and there are a good number of initiatives in that space. Uh, calling for the level playing field. Um, we just want to uh, here uh, provide a good overview of some of the recent uh, initiatives converging uh, to call for due diligence to become mandatory. And we have additional resources which can provide another view of that. So this is um, a section where we just want to frame what we understand today to be the uh, uh, the direction uh, that is coming with this um, European Union initiative and um, next step slide. First, uh, you should look at the right side of this page, that is this said as we speak. Um, it is clear that the scope of scenes expected to be addressed by this um, EU initiative will address human rights. But we will also have some environmental ramifications. Uh, in our 2030 report, we mentioned that at the very minimum, climate, circularity, and water should likely be part of that. Uh, and we, we think that this is something important because that makes a good interconnection between human rights and some of the environmental impacts that might come from the activities of investors and corporations. Second, it is very clear uh, uh, as we speak, that the primary focus of this in a, uh, European Union initiative will focus on supply chain. Um, we think uh, that the uh, uh, idea of a broader value chain would make sense, and the customer are actually always part of the supply chain of someone else at the end of the day. Uh, but for now, the clarity and of the focus is really on supply chain. Third point, uh, there will be a, a requirement related to the disclosure on results and impact, uh, which 
will connect with the spirit of the guiding principles of business and right. However, if there is clearly one step that goes beyond, at least the most, the closest uh, initiative today, which is France's duty of vigilance, uh, there will be um, an enforcement mechanism and an access to remedy system that is expected to be to come attached to this initiative. And that's new, and that's something I will give it much more uh, clarity, hopefully, and we'll discuss what clarity can mean later on. On the right, uh, the left side of that slide, you can see the next steps. Um, there will be some public consultation um, uh, for the second half of the year. And because this is supported by a moment when that, um, I would say, um, politics, of uh, EU politics, um, as we say, um, there will be a German presidency that will be um, in charge. Uh, German presidency has always uh, uh, been supportive of, uh, this, um, supportive of this initiative, so uh, it is clearly going to be part of the, of the mandate for the six months to come and uh, to prepare for 2021. And this slide will uh, make a good connection with our uh, interveners, because what will it take to get it right? Uh, these are six questions which we believe in discussion with our ecosystem of affiliates and experts working on those issues from multiple perspectives. These six points uh, are very important to ensure that uh, the EU directive is likely able to ensure a good, uh, smart support for business and investors to lead the human rights agenda in an effective and impactful manner or not. So the point number one is, of course, about this kind of standard that we're talking about when it comes to due diligence. Um, it can mean a lot of things for us, and when we work on those activities and consulting, we do explore um, the International Bill of Rights. As a starting point, we explore the pertinence and the salience of many of those themes. Um, is that going to be part of the methodology? Uh, how often is that going to be refreshed? Um, this is to be clarified. Point number two, on enforcement mechanisms. Um, it is very clear that if the enforcement mechanism is a deterrent, it is possible that the companies will really try to avoid having issues more than really work on exploring issues and ensuring that they mitigate impact. And that's actually, at the end of the day, what we want. We want something that advances, that advances the human rights agenda. Point number three, the external the reach is important as well. And this end that, of course, which companies are, uh, are covered uh, by that uh, scope, um, and if they operate from outside of the European Union, uh, for example, um, just um, uh, could be um, the United Kingdom with the Brexit underway, uh, that has a bearing on the value of those uh, initiatives. Um, point number four that is often coming through um, a lot of the uh, large voice from the, the civil society is the consistency of this initiative with trade and bilateral investment treaties and agreements uh, to ensure that the content and the way companies, bilateral relationship between companies may not offset um, enforcement of this kind of, of initiative. That's important. And point number five, very correlated to this question of consistency, is of course uh, the consistency between uh, enforcement of regulation that addresses um, the private sector and diplomacy, uh, because many of you as practitioners and decision makers know very well that a lot of human rights abuses can be dependent on local context and the local operating environment. And at the end of the day, when uh, investing in India or in Western Africa, like two examples, um, is happening in contexts where it is very hard 
to um, to ensure that um, a minimum level of working condition is possible. And in the COVID-19 context, this is exactly what's happening in India. For example, we have a, a blog about that, accessible in our publication section. It's a problem. So consistency, again, is important. And last point, it's about the clarity and the environmental ramifications we're talking about. Just as an illustrative example of that, uh, of that aspect, because in France there been this uh, duty of vigilance initiative a few years ago, um, a lot of um, Fortune 500 related companies in France have scratched their heads to understand to which extent climate is part of the scope of uh, duty of vigilance on human rights or not. And the conclusion to date is just a sense of clarity. And at the end of the day, that is our understanding that for something like 50%, 5-0, it is clear that climate is part of the human rights due diligence scope of thinking at a minimum, but for 50%, it is not. It is clearly a topic that addresses primarily working condition, labor condition, child labor. Um, and at the end of the day, we're going way too far to, to have companies to, uh, to, to, to think of in terms of environmental implications of their business activity. The question is not clarified, and uh, if the European Union initiative intends uh, to provide clarification in that space, that will be, of course, very welcome, because at the end of the day, investors and corporations want clarity and predictability. Um, in the context of the COVID-19 impact, it, that would be just kind of a closing word. We are a mission-driven organization. We support strongly um, a human rights agenda. So I, would, I say that because at the end of the day, we are probably a little bit biased in what I'm going to say. However, it is very clear that um, the recession uh, may encourage policymakers, business and investor decision makers to consider that less uh, human rights is likely more conducive to the business, less regulation than more. We think this is a very big mistake and a full a big mistake in the sense that at the end of the day, what business and investors need is stability. And more human rights can support less explosive social context. And all over the world, the social context can be extremely explosive. So actually at the end of the day, we do encourage more human rights, more regulation in the space to ensure that at the end of the day, uh, the business case for, from the private sector perspective is to support an inclusive growth agenda, less inequality, and at the end of the day, more stability to do good business. So in summary, um, the European Union initiative that is in discussion as we speak um, is uh, clearly something that will um, call for clarity on um, and a meaningful enforcement mechanism. Uh, that is part of um, what we are going to discuss in a minute. Clarity and the expectations for the breadth of the initiative and uh, what kind of company can be included or not, what is the uh, part of the supply chain that is included. And in the context of the COVID-19, it is very important to make sure that those initiatives will uh, become even stronger and make the business case to be part of the solution more than part of the problem. Time to move on and walk through those discussion uh, with our panelists. And for this, I am delighted to welcome Virginie and Jonathan, who are going to share um, their perspective as well. And to start our discussion, I will uh, invite John to introduce himself. 
Thank you, Fareed, uh, and and thank you, everybody, for uh, uh, tuning in. I'm Jonathan Dremmer. I'm a partner at the law firm of Paul Hastings, global firm of Paul Hastings. I also wear a number of other hats as well. I'm the North American uh, expert advisor uh, for the Global Business Initiative on Human Rights. I am a strategic advisor to the Voluntary Principles on Security and Human Rights and a senior advisor at BSR. I also uh, am on the uh, adjunct faculty at Georgetown Law Center. So I, my who I am, I, I advise companies on business and human rights issues, uh, often on the legal component across a wide range of industries, uh, extractive sector, life science, technology, financial institutions, food and beverage, et cetera. Also advise the US and Canadian governments on different issues related to business and human rights. I've worked in the field of business and human rights since about 2005, which of course is pre-UN uh, Guiding Principles. It was actually the year that Professor Ruggie um, received his mandate. I'm a former Deputy General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Barrett Gold, where I developed and implemented one of the first human rights compliance programs after the guiding principles uh, was adopted. So in addition to advising on programs that actually uh, built and run all aspects of a, of a human rights management system or compliance program from developing governance structures to policies and procedures and grievance mechanisms and remedy programs and all aspects of human rights diligence, investigations, and disputes, um, whether it's litigation or OECD, uh, NCP matters, etc. Uh, I'm a former deputy director of the U.S. Department of Justice in the criminal division component, where I focused on international humanitarian law and uh, worked on business and human rights issues uh, in, a, in a wide range of challenging places, DRC, Niger Delta, Papua New Guinea, Pakistan, elsewhere. Um, so that's me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Farid. Yeah, thank you. As I said, I think it's very important to have depth of expertise in this table and your perspective to strengthen the global uh, vision we want to have on those uh, discussions. Virginie, please introduce yourself as well. Sure. Uh, hi, thanks, David. Um, I'm delighted to be here and uh, tell you a little bit about uh, my company, Modelies International. I'll tell you a little bit about myself as well. Um, I have been uh, with Mondelez for about uh, 10 years. I lead uh, globally our strategy uh, for social sustainability, or really the company's impact on uh, human rights of people uh, within our value chain. Uh, for those who might not know um, Mondelez, you probably know our, our brands, our products. Uh, even if you may not know the, the corporate name behind it, Mondelez International, um, is one of the world's largest uh, snacking companies. We make uh, chocolate like Milka, Cadbury, and cookies like uh, Oreo, or in France, uh, you will know Rue very well. Um, and yeah, what I, what I want to share here uh, about Mondelez is really uh, the company's commitment to uh, making our snacks the right way, and what we mean by that is both uh, protecting the planet uh, and respecting the rights of people uh, in our value chain. Um, this commitment, um, we really live it through um, our human rights due diligence uh, program using the UNGPs um, as a framework. Um, and it is with this in mind um, that uh, more recently we have been uh, quite active uh, at European level in terms of advocacy, um, calling for, for the European Union to uh, implement uh, human rights due, due diligence and make it mandatory 
Um, so I yeah, look forward to telling you a little bit more about that as we get into the discussion. So let's move on. And as you speak, I'd uh, be delighted to uh, move to question number one here about the medieval enforcement mechanism that you think can make sense based on the work that you've uh, laid in the, toward the European Union recently. That's interesting. What do you want? Sure. <laughs> what do we want? Um, there's a number of reasons that we, we want to see um, due diligence legislation come into play. From a business perspective, um, there are a number of benefits that we see. Uh, one is really to, you know, rather obvious, to level the, the playing field. We want everyone to be playing by the, the same rules, um, frankly, to also be, you know, incurring uh, the same costs uh, associated um, with doing uh, that kind of due diligence. We want um, legal certainty, you know, something you really, you touched upon in, in your introduction. Um, it, at this stage, we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of different approaches uh, coming up uh, in different countries. Um, we see it as something that will be, you know, difficult to navigate if there are different approaches. Uh, one harmonized approach uh, at European level will, uh, would already, you know, help versus 27. Uh, of course, ideally, we would love to see a, a more international um, approach. And, you know, there, there is, uh, there are uh, treaty um, discussions for, for binding treaty, but as we understand, you know, that's a, that's a long-term um, game. In the meantime, uh, Europe would already be, a, you know, a very good um, first step. Um, but perhaps most importantly, in terms of the, you know, the reason why we're speaking up on this topic is from our experience running, um, running due diligence and trying to address the issues um, within uh, our supply chain, um, we see that um, we're not necessarily getting the, the traction uh, that we want. We don't necessarily have the leverage. Um, necessary to address some of the issues that we're facing, which are really um, systemic in nature. Um, and for, for that to change, um, we think it's very important that um, it becomes much more of a mainstream practice for all companies along the supply chain um, to you know, identify and address uh, issues in their supply chain. Today, you already have a lot of companies that are engaged, uh, but not all companies along the supply chain are facing um, the same level of pressure. Um, we want to make sure that you know, all actors along the chain, whether they are um, you know, facing consumer pressure or not, um, get very engaged uh, with the topic. Um, and also because um, you know, we see, we look at um, due diligence as only one piece of the puzzle. Uh, we think it's very important, um, you know, for companies to play their part. I mean, if you think of the, the framework of the UNGPs, um, companies have the duty to respect, but there's also a very big role that's laid out for governments. Uh, and we want that piece to also um, be activated, uh, not only from um, a consuming government perspective. So the EU, in, in this case, has a big role to play, but this is also true, of course, for uh, for governments where, uh, in the case of a supply chain, you know, goods are, are being produced. Um, so this is also part of the ask to the EU is to, uh, you know, in the spirit of the UNGPs, uh, look at a smart policy mix and look at the 
other tools in its policy toolbox, um, looking at trade, looking at foreign aid, um, as to how it can support um, the enabling environment in um, places where issues are happening. Um, yeah, so that, so that the environment is there that enables uh, companies to actually respect human rights. Thank you. Very, very clear. And I'll connect with John's perspective there, talking about smart, the concepts of smartness to support business efforts meaningfully. What would be your perspective, John, on that? Yeah, thanks, Reid, and, and, and really agree with Virginia and agree with you, you know, completely. And, and thinking about um, some of the larger points and themes for business, it, it certainly, you know, having a single initiative would level the playing field. You know, it reduces overall liabilities and say risks to stakeholders. Having a single standard means not having to set up mechanisms to comply with the patchwork of domestic laws, having it cut across sectors and issues, and you don't have to put into place different processes to deal with specific challenges that so bring certainty and predictability and uniformity and, 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 and leverage with uh, suppliers, as Virginia mentioned. But let me give you um, the U.S. perspective, which may be a helpful input, you know, from 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 this analysis, and I'll, and I'll tell you, at this point, I, I don't think it's quite landed on the radar of U.S. companies to the degree that it should, or or the degree um, to which you know it's it's hitting um, EU companies, uh, and almost certainly, if you look at the jurisdictional aspect, which which you covered for it, um, it's going to cover companies that are doing business in in the EU almost certainly and so it, even if it's not companies that are are literally covered under the jurisdiction of the law it, they're going to be suppliers they're going to be in the value chains for those who do fall under the law so it's going to hit them directly um, or 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 indirectly and therefore I do think there will come a point where this becomes something that US companies are, are become more aware of. Um, you know, on the U.S. side, though, you know, while while on the one hand it isn't quite front and center the EU mandatory diligence regime, it doesn't mean that you know the concept of diligence um, won't have a number of of benefits. A mandatory diligence approach won't have a number of benefits. Right now, it's a little bit more ad hoc in the U.S. in terms of specific areas where uh, diligence ends up um, making uh, playing an important role. You know, certainly in the trade context. Uh, continued use of withhold release orders under the U.S. Tariff Act uh, for goods that are, are produced by forced labor. They can be seized on a reasonable uh, suspicion basis, and a human rights due diligence law is going to help avoid supply chain disruptions that comes with having your goods taken and helping get them out of, of control of the government um, if, if, in fact, they are seized. Uh, when as it comes to uh, issues in the United States directed towards China, we have a new law that was just put into place a couple of weeks ago that allows the president to impose sanctions on on people, on companies, on entities that are involved in activities against the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang and, and otherwise uh, in China. And it, and it tells U.S. businesses they should take steps to make sure they're not contributing to surveillance activities, they don't have forced labor in their supply chains. So it's encouraging companies to conduct exactly the kind of human rights due diligence that we're talking about. More generally, we're seeing a lot of sanctions issues that relate to human rights under the Global Magnitsky Act, under um, the Department of Treasury, under the Department of Commerce, sanctions against individuals, entities that are accused of human rights violations. And, then, and as with all sanctions laws, this does take diligence as well. 
you know, one of the most actively used litigation mechanisms in the U.S. right now is the Trafficking uh, Victim uh, Protection Reauthorization Act, TVPRA, which basically focuses on uh, companies that know or should know that they're receiving benefits from participating in a venture that involves trafficked labor and human rights diligence there uh, is going to be very helpful in, in identifying and, and looking to remedy a potential red flags. We, we already have a mandatory diligence piece as, as part of conflict minerals, so a number of companies are doing that. So given this wide array of issues, these ad hoc array, uh, array of issues, as we think about a mandatory law, a holistic approach to addressing them with one process, one program, <clears throat> um, is going to be uh, very helpful, even though U.S. businesses may not fully uh, realize it at, at, at this point. Excellent, because for our um, participants, mostly coming with uh, an investor perspective on those topics or corporate perspective, on the one hand, European Union is calling for a standard uh, on due diligence, which of course is still to be defined and clarified, but at the end of the day, an approach that can be standardized for a level playing field. And in the US, there is um, an ad hoc approach um, encouraging in a way for more consistency to, to ensure that in a proactive manner, no matter what you do, what you import, export, and how you do business, at least you try the best you can to uh, proactively mitigate potential risks just because the ad hoc aspect of uh, the, the initiatives in the U.S. may or may not um, be pertinent for your business. It's been, just to add on your points, John, it's been very uh, simple examples like uh, gloves, rubber gloves from Malaysia, uh, or chocolate, um, an allegation of uh, uh, child labor in Cote d'Ivoire, and in those two cases, um, problems for those willing to import uh, such products into the U.S. for human rights allegations. It's just very concrete. Um, moving on uh, to a second question that we have for the breadth of the initiative. Having said those elements, with, which of course connects with a lot of issues, I think I'd be interested to listen to you, Virginie, first on uh, the region, the I will be able to pronounce that word once in the webinar, jurisdictional reach uh, or articulation with diplomacy, uh, where you think that at the end of the day, this initiative addressing direct with businesses can make sense only with consistency on one of these two aspects. Um, you have mentioned yourself uh, unfair uh, living playing field and ensuring that everyone plays with the same rules. That's one aspect. The other aspect for a lot of your business, which is very yummy, yummy by the way, there are a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, contextual issues uh, from your own supply chain perspective. So what would be one example you would like to share for colleagues for consistency? Sure. Um, so one area where we would see, um, you know, benefits from the EU taking on a, a proactive role. So, you know, beyond uh, this more, you know, horizontal approach that I was mentioning earlier in which, you know, we have had confirmation from Commissioner Reinders that the EU, um, you know, is moving ahead uh, with uh, plans to have a proposal, you know, probably in, in 2021, uh, which we're supportive of. Beyond that, uh, we think the EU should also, you know, consider uh, sectoral um, approaches. 
um, you know, in, in our case, as a, as a chocolate maker, we have been engaging in, in conversations uh, with the Commission and, and other policymakers uh, on the topic of the, the cocoa supply chain. I mean, you, you mentioned it, uh, Fahid, I think, you know, in your slides and, and in your comments. Uh, it is a supply chain that unfortunately uh, continues to have uh, very serious uh, both human rights and environmental uh, issues in particular in the two countries where um, the majority of cocoa is grown in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. Um, we see, you know, benefit um, for a piece of regulation um, to go beyond the horizontal uh, obligations uh, and look deeper at how that applies to a given um, supply chain. Um, the, we think cocoa, you know, would be a, a good place to start for, for the European Union uh, because for one, the EU is, you know, by far the largest uh, consuming market uh, for cocoa coming uh, from West Africa. Uh, but also because it's one of um, those sectors, although there are a lot of problems in the supply chain, it is, it is a sector where industry uh, is very engaged and has been um, trying hard for years um, to address those issues, uh, is at a stage where there is, um, you know, good understanding of the issues on the ground, a lot of collaboration uh, amongst uh, branded companies, their suppliers, and increasingly, uh, with the two governments in those countries. Um, so the elements are in place um, to kind of get to that next level and the European Union uh, getting involved by um, setting a bit the, the rules of the game in terms of what the roles of companies is uh, to conduct uh, due diligence from an environmental and human rights perspective uh, but also using, um, again, you know, its other uh, policy tools um, to uh, work together with the producing governments and um, help to tackle some of those um, structural systemic uh, issues underlying, you know, problems in the supply chain, such as child labor and deforestation, um, would be uh, most welcome, and you know, I'm happy to say that that conversation is is progressing and and going well, and that we had uh, actually uh, last week, you know, a very good meeting um, together with um, a few other companies and NGOs who we're partnering with, um, with three um, EU commissioners uh, for environment, um, for um, development. Um, and for trade, um, showing, you know, really the, the level of interest uh, in Brussels is, is high, not only from Commissioner Reinders, but his colleagues are also looking into uh, what their role is to play uh, in this debate. Just uh, curious, uh, given that uh, Mabilis happens to be an American company, to which extent you think this initiative and at least the kind of discussion uh, can come with it, uh, are helpful to build more alignment uh, across the continent, uh, given your role? Is that helpful for you? Sure. I mean, you know, I think having coming from um, from the U.S., being a U.S. headquartered company, um, you know, we're very um, 
attuned to um, the approach over there. Um, you know, there we also, um, you know, we would support um, a due diligence uh, approach. Um, the debate is just not at, at the same level uh, at this stage, but we also see, you know, some important lessons um, from the way things work in the U.S. Um, that we want, um, you know, to learn from when it comes to how things are set up uh, in the EU. Um, you know, we've been talking about enforcement mechanisms and for sure there needs to be uh, enforcement for this law to be meaningful and drive change. Uh, but it's important that those mechanisms are, are set up carefully uh, and lead to the right incentives uh, for companies. Um, what we really don't want to see is a law that creates a legal environment whereby companies um, become, um, you know, afraid of engaging with risks in their supply chains uh, and turn away from those risks. I mean, as we all know from, from the UN guiding principles, that's absolutely not the intent. Um, if you find a, a problem in your supply chain, you should work with your supplier, you should try uh, to address the issue and not move away to you know, a less risky um, location. Um, but if you, if you fear litigation um, uh, from you know, even engaging with that risk, finding out about that risk, um, then you have you know, a piece of legislation that wouldn't make sense and that would create um, you know, negative unintended uh, consequences. But, um, I guess you know John can probably yeah comment on that uh, better than I can in terms of you know what would be the right enforcement mechanisms to to avoid this kind of situation. Yeah, excellent. I think John has a little uh, technical issues apparently, so I'll just move on and take uh, before John can uh, can can join us again. A few questions from the group. Um, one that I can address very quickly, uh, which you touched upon, Virginie, about deforestation and how the, does uh, this EU initiative addresses the question of deforestation. Um, as per previous slide and what we know for now, um, there is clearly uh, interest to include environmental impacts as part of that um, 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 initiative, uh, but it's not clear yet what would be the scope of those impacts. So it is likely that there are ways for deforestation to be included or not. And at the end of the day, there will be also a kind of dialogue with civil society to, to go to understand how far that might go. As I said uh, previously, given that the closest initiative to date in terms of scope has been um, France's initiative on duty of vigilance, at the beginning that came as an initiative to provide regulation and address run-up-lads um, accidents, and the scope has clearly increased over time um, to increasingly include um, climate as part of the, the consideration. So it's possible that deforestation will go on a similar, uh, clearly on a similar route. Um, there is also another uh, question which I find interesting, and maybe that's a way also to reconnect with uh, John, who had the chance normally to connect back with us. Um, another participant is uh, asking whether uh, this initiative is encouraging or framing more of a fiduciary duty of directors of companies to address environmental and or human rights issues. Um, 
So that second question, I would, um, again, I think it's a question that can be addressed and, and then uh, Virginie, you can actually also comment on those two questions um, as John is not connected uh, as we speak, unfortunately. Um, but on the second aspect, what we've seen in direct discussion, for example, with, with, with boards of directors is the growing concept of fiduciary duty of directors, uh, particularly coming through the lens of climate. Uh, for sure, this is something that has been uh, growing notably uh, in um, Sweden, uh, France, UK, among a couple of uh, jurisdictions I can think of. Um, and with this in mind, the climate lens has increasingly encouraged uh, directors of companies to explore proactively the risk and if that uh, human rights due diligence um, includes climate as part of the environmental considerations. Clearly, for the years to come, uh, there will be a convergence to use what will come out of the work led by companies to conduct their own due diligence on human rights environmental issues um, and to infuse basically the, the concepts of the fiduciary uh, duty. It's, it's really, a, I mean, a lot of conversation about that with uh, legal and, and investors and, and, and board of director organizations. Uh, Virginie, do you want to comment on these two questions of deforestation, including not or and or fiduciary duty? If you have any opinion on those, sure. I mean, I'm um, happy to comment on the first one. The second one, I must say, you're um, going a little bit. Oh, fine. My, my area. <laughs> okay. Jeez, I'm not really That's a okay. myself or, or governance expert. Um, but on on deforestation, I mean, from from our perspective, it is you know it is important that this legislation. Uh, looks beyond strictly um, human rights. I mean, I think from a company perspective, and that, I think that's true for uh, many companies at this stage, uh, you know, we look at sustainability um, holistically. You can't separate, you know, issues of human rights and deforestation very much on the ground. They're very linked. Um, so legislation should take into both into account. Um, you know, what that will mean uh, concretely, on the environmental side is is a bit harder to say i mean you know we have things are well codified uh on the human rights side a bit less so on the environmental side so i guess you know more work to be done um by eu policymakers. but i think as you highlighted farid i mean i think this is the the signals we're getting from the commission uh is that they are looking um at this kind of broad um scope in line with the the French model. Um, so I think this is what we can expect and, you know, agree with you that uh, what's needed is, um, you know, a stakeholder dialogue. I mean, a civil society needs to very much be involved. Companies themselves need to be involved as well um, to make sure that, you know, the legislation um, makes sense for, for all involved. John, uh is back uh, and I'm delighted to give him the chance to contribute. <laughs> uh, and uh, so John, just moving on. Yeah, I'm time, sorry about that. Moving on. That happened, no worries. Just moving on. I'd love you uh, to, given your breadth and depth of uh, expertise, to maybe to challenge or explain why um, moving on to 
question number three, uh, addressing COVID-19 impact. It's part of the introduction I said myself that I think human, more human rights is part of the solution um, rather than the contrary, given um, an explosive social context uh, across the world, and I believe business and investor uh, stability and predictability. You might be in agreement or in disagreement, but at least I'd be delighted to get your, your views on that um, from your, your broad expertise. So, so we also to move on to question number three. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In terms of the, the breadth of human rights issues, look, I mean, I do think, you know, we are going to be um, obviously feeling our way through uh, this process. I, I think, you know, one of the concerns certainly is on the enforcement side. And as we think about including more human rights issues, um, you know, and, and, and a salient risk analysis will be necessary, obviously, to figure out, you know, how to prioritize efforts. You know, there are real concerns among companies that are focusing on an enforcement and what does it mean? And really there are two potential approaches um, or two potential issues that have to be considered in an approach. One is, um, are you focusing on uh, affected stakeholders and negative human rights impacts and making sure that there are remedies available for negatively impact stakeholder, impacted stakeholders? And in, in, in that respect, environmental issues, climate issues, other issues that, um, you know, are talked about as being included, maybe a little bit more difficult in terms of an overall uh, legal approach. You think about causation and things like that. And on the other side, you've got process issues. And if you're issuing reports that, that aren't adequate or your due diligence process isn't seen to be appropriate, you know, at that point, can that give rise, should that give rise to potential enforcement activities? And so um, how, how all of these get worked out is gonna be uh, obviously something we'll, we'll need to see. Um, but certainly, you know, from a U.S. standpoint, where we do see a lot of litigation, it's a very litigious society. This is something that, no question, will make uh, companies nervous, and particularly U.S. companies nervous. Yeah, Virginia, how do you view this? Um, given your, when I look at again, I get back to the basics and just your task: uh, global social sustainability and human rights lead. Um, and to which extent you see the COVID-19 impacts uh, generating more pressure on, you know, budget, you know, cost and, uh, you know, uh, less employment and things like that impacting um, um, good efforts on human rights. Sure. It's important because you will have to address that question sooner or later, I'm sure. <laughs> um. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're, you know, entering a difficult um, economic times. Um, you know, luckily, um, Mondelez is in the food sector. Um, and so far as, you know, doing business is doing well. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, we're, uh, of course, you know, like all companies, very affected by uh, COVID-19. I mean, first of all, to, you know, keep our uh, 80,000 plus employees around the world um, safe uh, while, um, you know, keeping um, the food supply chain uh, going. Uh, that's, been, that's been challenging um, for sure. Uh, but we've also seen, you know, from, from my perspective and, and looking at the, the risks we're exposed to, uh, we've seen those risks really um, increasing. You know, you had on one of your slides earlier um, a news clipping about uh, child labor risk increasing 
uh, in the cocoa supply chain. That's um, that's very much um, you know something that uh, that we are seeing, and that we're seeing this on the one hand, and on the other, uh, you know, limitations in terms of interventions that we can have on the ground. You know, because of course we need to uh, be very mindful of um, health concerns first and, and foremost, um, but also you know risks. I think we're still um, in the process of um, evaluating uh, in terms of how the situation is affecting uh, some other of our um, supply chains. Uh, what's clear is, you know, the, the most vulnerable workers um, are the ones who are, um, you know, going to be, uh, are getting uh, hit the hardest um, by, by the situation. Um, in you know a number of our supply chains, um, where in normal times we see the most vulnerable populations to things like um, forced labor, are migrant workers. Um, in the in the current climate, um, they will be um, even more uh, at risk. So it's important for you know for companies to uh, find ways to address this heightened risk. Um, and it's it's certainly not the time uh, to kind of you know relax uh, expectations or action uh, from a business perspective. Um, and I think you know thankfully this is also recognized um, by policymakers certainly in in the EU. I mean I think Commissioner Reinders made that you know very clear when he made that announcement. Uh, about you know looking for for 2021, uh, I think policymakers very much understand that this is this only makes it more critical for the EU to act um, rather than yeah stepping away. Very clear. Uh, thank you so much. So I'll just move on as uh, we're running to the, the end, um, ensuring that people can respond to a poll. Um, it's really just three questions um, in your responses are very helpful to all of us. So thanks so much for those who've already responded. And I'm happy given the number of uh, participants to say that uh, right now the level of satisfaction is very high. So uh, of course, if you disagree, time to participate. <laughs> and uh, just moving on, and I will ask a closing question to our two panelists in a second. I just wanna make sure that uh, as you complete the poll, there is clarity on some of the next steps with our um, initiatives at Xapa Dotor. Um, we have uh, working with Hard Rod Center and we'll be meeting at the end of August a webinar on inclusive goals, exploring leadership lessons of the Great Recession. I said it and I take the time to share that because I think that complements what goes in the same direction as your, your point, Virginie, in those, in those days. Um, we'll explore some research in that space about what leadership lessons can mean uh, in hard times and of course, um, upholding the human rights agenda being part of what we want to support. Um, we know that a lot of the issues are pretty contentious and that the intelligence discussions is calling for um, a lot of um, stakeholder engagement. So we are uh, uh, scheduling some, some activity in that space on the 21st of July. Uh, and more webinars will come in September. And at the end of the day, they're all accessible um, on our website directly and through if you track us and follow us through uh, social media, you'll, you'll be uh, aware of some of those activities. So I got a question remark uh, for uh, the closing uh, question for our two interviewers today. Um, I will start with you, Virginie. Then 
just sharing one thing that you've confirmed or learned uh, in discussion with John today in this, uh, in this, in, in this webinar. Or to the questions coming from participants, by the way. Sure. Um, no, it, it's been very interesting to to exchange uh, with John and get his perspective. Uh, unfortunate that we we missed uh, his answer on a couple of questions due to technical issues, but it was uh, very interesting for me to hear uh, his perspective, also confirming a little bit, you know, what the environment is like um, in in the U.S. Uh, and for me, it only you know stresses. Um, I guess the hope um, that, you know, the kind of conversation we're seeing uh, in the EU today uh, can perhaps start constructively in the US um, soon, you know, uh, fingers, fingers crossed, um, because, you know, although the EU is, um, you know, the largest um, consumer uh, market, um, the, the U.S. is next and we need, um, you know, for standard to really be uh, mainstream for, uh, you know, human rights due diligence to become the norm, the way um, all companies do business uh, eventually. I mean, we need not only... Thank you so much. Very inspiring, very concrete. And I think those topics need to be as concrete as possible, by the way. John, luckily or unluckily, I don't know, it's up to you. You have... Uh, the closing words for all of us, something you've learned or confirmed in this conversation today. Yeah, I, I, thanks, Ray. I think, you know, it's confirmed one of my concerns that extending um, the uh, scope of the legislation to environmental issues is going gonna, is gonna to pose complications that I, I think companies will be a little bit less prepared for, that if we limit it to, to core human rights issues, that, that is something that, you know, is uh, people are more comfortable being able to address if we expand it into climate, into environmental issues, into broader issues beyond it. That, that, that does confirm for me that, that it's going to be a little bit more difficult for companies to comply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's been very contentious, I would say, just uh, um, for some of the programs that uh, we'll be uh, managing um, in, um, in France, given that they've been that uh, jurisdiction or accusing jurisdiction in place. So. Thanks so much for your contributions. Um, uh, again, through LinkedIn, each of you can connect, by the way. Um, and on our website, you can um, uh, uh, very soon, uh, in 24 hours max, have access to the full content of this, uh, of this webinar. Um, I will close the discussion now. And um, of course, we remain accessible um, if you have any uh, question and or follow-up uh, requests um, that are relevant to this topic. Um, and just last point, we will of course keep a close eye on those um, developments. As you can see, there are a series of webinars for the weeks to come, but there will be more uh, coming when uh, we'll get more clarity um, in the uh, last quarter and early uh, quarter next year uh, to keep that conversation going. Have an excellent day, um, uh, afternoon or evening, depending on uh, where you're connecting with us. And thanks so much. <laughs>